Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Emily Hunter McGowan. She is a teacher and scholar of religious studies and a theologian in the Anglican tradition. She serves as associate lecturer of theology at Wheaton College. She's also a deacon in the Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others. I give you Emily Hunter McGowan. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You are, you've planted a church with your husband, and now you're teaching at Wheaton College. You're, you're, full, you're a full-time teacher employed in the vocation of instructing minds, and now this Sunday your husband can go to school on your lectionary insights because he's got two churches. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yes, that's, that's a lot right. of preaching. So mm-hmm. our first text is a great text, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, with option of 9 through 13. I love when they give you the optional rings. But here yeah. you go. You have King Uzziah dying, and you have the, this is kind of Isaiah's call story, right? I mean, you have this, mm-hmm. this he, he goes in the temple, and the la- one of the last things that, you know, sometimes you are in the place of worship or the or the religious place and god shows up it's rare sometimes <laughs> but actually but actually he he's he uh he sees the lord's presence and and he mm-hmm. is humbled and the lord uh has to sort of a seraph had this big angel and this is probably not the little cute kind of chubby cupid like angel uh touches his mouth with coal cleans his you know to make his his lips clean because he says i'm you know i'm unclean i live among an unclean people and then he's sent out to go be the prophet to his country who has had better times right Right. And I have to tell you, I'm actually more attracted to the stuff that they say is parenthetical that you don't have to do. <laughs> when the lectionary says you don't have to do a text, I'm sort of like, why Why not? I'm always drawn to that. Um, yeah, why did you put so those cookies up on the top shelf? What, what's what's right, that? Right, right. I mean, because it's this beautiful call story, this vision of God, this powerful call, here am I, send me. But then it goes right into, yeah, you're going to preach, but no one's going to listen to you. Um I don't think any one of us sign up for that when we sign up to to preach the good news. Um, but that's what he says. They're gonna you're gonna stop their ears and shut their eyes, and they're gonna look and not repent. Um, I don't know. You can see why the lectionary would say that's optional because that doesn't sound like good news. You could say in a patriarchal culture for women in ministry, this is the great text. Like you're gonna preach and be harassed. <laughs> there is no doubt about that. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, there's a part of it also, though, that maybe it is good news, because just like Isaiah had to be cleansed, you know, he, he in the face of God, he realizes his sinfulness has to be cleansed. There's a sense in which when you encounter the preaching of God and find yourself just continuing to be calloused and hardened, that that actually forces you to simply throw yourself on the mercy of God. Because if you think there's something within you that will naturally respond to the good news, then you're probably in the position of working your way to it, which is not 
it's not going to work. God has to simply encounter you and give you the ability to respond, at least at least in my theological understanding. Yeah, um, what, what does Eugene Peterson say? Discipleship is focusing more and more on Christ's righteousness and less and less on your own. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, when we recognize we're totally helpless, so that's kind of the first step toward being delivered, isn't it? Absolutely. So, yeah. It's interesting, yeah. too, that I, I feel like there's, I mean, liturgically, you think of like from various traditions, there are some common patterns. And one way to think about ecumenical kind of liturgical worship is sort of like gathering word table sending or something. But it, it could also think of it, right, like Isaiah's story, because here's, I mean, there's a calling, right? And you're brought into the presence of the holy. And then the first, you know, it's like the lights get turned on and you see how unclean you are, how dirty you are. So there's confession, right? And then there's consecration, right? He's set apart, like he's 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 reformed by by the word of God. He's changed, right? And just like we sit under the word, and then, I mean, one thing. Oftentimes, there's communion, like with a meal. I mean, he's clearly communing with God. Sometimes, like as Israel goes up the mountain, they're cleansed, and there's a communion. There's at the table, and then there's a commissioning, right? Like alliteration. It's like the five C's, but like, but you, (laughs) but you see, it's almost like the entire liturgical experience and the experience of of a person with god in miniature here from 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 start to finish like it seems like every encounter with god includes one or two of these elements in scripture but the more full ones seem to have them all in one yes yeah and i think that the in the in the being sent and in the going out you have to realize that like faithfulness and efficacy don't always go together (coughs) right that like faithfulness to what you've encountered to the message you've been given doesn't necessarily result in what you expect. It's not a one-on-one correspondence. If you do X, Y, and Z, then this will result. We actually don't have any control over the results, um, which is both comforting and <laughs> discomforting at the same time. I had a guy interviewed, Kirian Setia, on an interview podcast I do, and he's he is a philosopher at MIT, and he wrote a book called Midlife because he had a midlife crisis. He's like, what, what's next for me? I'm grading these papers for uh, get writing these papers for conferences. What do I do? I grade more, right? And and he's like, I'm going to use philosophy, like cognitive behavioral therapy. And he, so it's like a philosopher's reflection on midlife crisis. And one of the things he says, like he says, he talked about doing things teleologically, like Aristotle said, what are the things you would do as an end in themselves, like virtue? Mm-hmm. And so, so and he thought that really helped him. Because I'd love to talk about philosophy and think about it, even if I wasn't getting paid. So, I mean, something right. here, like like God is 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 the is the is the end, right? And so is God's call. It's not a means to an end, exactly. But it's an end in and of itself, to, regardless of what you think the fruit is. Right. Yes. go on to our next text, which is, of course, 1 Corinthians 15, mm-hmm. verses 1 through 11. Here, Paul it begins his, his uh, basically defense of the resurrection or his presentation of it. It's interesting because the last text in the lectionary was, was 1 Corinthians 13, where, which he reads, or which is always read at weddings. It's funny mm-hmm. because... Everything he says about love is stuff he accused the Corinthians of. Like, it's it's right. patient, it's not rude. It's and they, <laughs> the, impl- the implication is that they are all those things. But 
But then he says the great, these things remain faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And then he moves on to discussion later of, of faith and hope, it seems, right? Where, uh, mm-hmm. Of faith and the resurrection and the hope it brings. So yes. it's an interesting kind of transition, uh, you know, from the, the love stuff to the faith and hope stuff. Well, I think they're, I actually think they're integrally related. Like the, I think the love, there's a way in which you could say that the love that that Christ is asking us to enter into is made possible through the resurrection. That without it, without the resurrection as a sort of world-changing reality, we couldn't really enter into the kind of love that, that he's asking us to enter into. We, we have to know that, that the world has been changed, that the hopes of Israel have been fulfilled, and that we can then live, live in love and, and trust in the, in the you know, truth of the resurrection. Yeah, and as you said before, right, it always begins with passivity. Like, so it's the right. good news proclaimed to you, right? which you mm-hmm. in turn received, you know, th- th- there's this sense in which it's a gift. It's not something that they deduce from their own ingenuity or something that they could have come up with through their own sort of spiritual and religious athleticism. It's something that happens <laughs> outside of them, but for them. Right. Yeah, there was this, I actually looked at a sermon from Harawas recently, where an old sermon, where he said something like, could you really imagine these fishermen coming up with the resurrection? I mean, really, like these guys, you know, these fishermen and, you know, dirty, rotten sinners just sitting together thinking, oh, let's say that a new world has been inaugurated, and let's just start living as though that's true. I mean, it's not something that they would have come up with. It's it's a total surprise even to them. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's like you you have conceptions in, in the ancient Mediterranean at the time of like a sort of afterlife disembodied. And then you even have Jewish senses of a general resurrection at the end of history for vindicated Jews. But no one would have thought one Jew would have been resurrected in the middle of history. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, definitely not. And then we're supposed to live in light of that. And how, how do we live in light of that? That's already and not yet. um, That this, this dawning of, what does he say? Forgiveness, right? Personal sin forgiveness, right? Is available. And yet there's also this way of walking in forgiveness and living in light of the resurrection today. It seems like foolishness. I mean, it really does. It seems like foolishness. Yeah. And it's interesting. Aristotle says something, I think in the poetics that, that, you know, a great story because like the climactic moments, the, 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 the dramatic moments, you can't predict them. Mm. But then when they come, you're like, oh, of course, nothing else could have happened. And when, when we get bored with like a serial drama or a novel, it's because either the plot development is like it surprises you, but it seems disconnected from everything else that's going on. Or it's so it, it, it fits, but it's so predictable. Anybody could have seen it. So it's interesting because he says in accordance with the scriptures, just like his crucifixion yeah. was, just like the resurrection. And it, but nobody before the Christ event looked at the Bible and said, oh, of course, this is we're going to have a crucified <laughs> Messiah, third day, or so dead. It's something that you can only right. see is the key to the Bible after you know the Christ yes. event. You can't surmise it ahead of time. Right. I've always wondered about that according to the scriptures thing because it's it seems like a throwaway line, but he, he's sure to say it twice. It's like how... How is it according to the scriptures? Like you said, it has to be after the fact. There's no way that they would have predicted that. But now he looks back and says, ah, I see. This this is the fulfillment. Uh, this is the definitive self-revelation of God. It makes sense. It's fitting that it would be this way. And it's like once you see it, you can't unsee it. 
But yes. it, but until you see it, you can't. It's like there's things that used to be popular in the mall or used to go. This is I'm dating myself here, but like it was <laughs> it was some sort of geometric pattern. And if you looked long enough, like a whale or a space shuttle would rise off of it, like 3D. But you know, you sit there. I can't see it. I can't see it. I can't see it. And you you try to squint harder, and you can't see it. And then suddenly it just appears. And once it appears, you can't unsee it. But before right. it appears, you're like it's not really there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and this according to the scriptures thing is not what, you know, some more fundamentalist minded folks would want in like a proof. Like there's no proof in a scientific sense. There's no video recording, right? I mean, even if there was, what will we even be looking at? We're not sure. This is not a proof. Um, it's this encounter with God's revelation. It is in history, but more importantly, it's history transforming. It's history making. And you can only really encounter it as you begin to live it. I think. Yeah. And that's sort of what Paul's saying here, right? Like that, that continue to stand. Like if you stand in light of this, you'll continue. Like it's not just what saved you. It's like the tenses of redemption, right? On one level, you're saved 2000 years ago. Another level, you will be saved and finally redeemed when God makes all things. And in the in the time between the times you're, you're being saved, like renewed day by day, you know, so it's this kind of, Living in light of that new world, like inhabiting it, yeah, mm-hmm. it's interesting. I think I I shared this last week with my guest JD Cook, but so one of my favorite thinkers is Thomas Halik. He's a Czech theologian, Catholic priest. He became a Catholic priest under the Iron Curtain, so he's masquerading as a psychoanalyst, but also like did this underground seminary training through Charles Taylor, and all these people would be smuggled into the Czech Republic to teach him and stuff. Mm. But he wrote this book called Patience with God, and one of the ellipses is. Which I found out later, this guy was a, a Coptic layperson in Egypt, a lawyer or something, Adele Bastavaros. But he says, patience with others is love, patience with self is hope, and patience with God is faith. And it's just very interesting framing faith, hope, and love in terms of patience. And he says in the, yeah. in the intro to the book that what atheism and fundamentalism have in common is that they're two impatient forms of faith, especially impatient with the mysteries of God. Mm, that's good. And it seems here like this is part of it. You could look at the entire sort of encouragement to the Corinthians. It's like a lot of your spiritual maladies come from impatience. Yes. You know, and and encouraging them to be patient, you know, um, that's just an interest. I I love that reframing of the, of the virtues like that. See, and now I feel convicted. So you're going to have to stop. I'm not a patient person. <laughs> yeah, few people are. I mean, I, who, you know, who, and that's how I always say. People say, "What translation of the Bible do you like?" I say, "Whatever's least convicting." Right. <laughs> that's so true. Yeah, that's not good. And now we go on to our gospel reading, and the gospel reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And here we have Jesus on, he comes beside the lake of Gennesaret, the crowd's pressing in on him, he sees these boats, he finishes speaking, and uh, he gets into one of the boats belonging to Simon Peter, and says, put away and, you know, put down your nets. He's like, look, we've been working all night long. You know, 
All right, who's this gal, Ann Carpenter? It, 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 tell, okay, okay, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll let down our nets. And when they do so, they catch all these fish. It's amazing, their nets are beginning to break. And then he, he says, Peter says, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. And uh-huh. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid, from now on you will be catching people. And then they went to shore, they left everything and followed him. Yeah, I can't not hear the parallel with the Isaiah passage, right? Right, um, right, right. Yeah, he yeah. He encounters God. It's not in the way that we would expect, but he encounters God through this catch of fish, this abundance. He thought he was in this moment of scarcity, and suddenly there's this abundance that he didn't anticipate. Um, he realizes this is God's provision and that he's in the face of the Lord and then says, I'm a sinful man, you should leave me. Um, that to me just, it seems like Isaiah, it's a parallel story here. Yeah, and there's also an interesting parallel because it's almost the same miracle in John 21, where yeah. where after the crucifixion and resurrection, it's that uh, la- after the crucifixion resurrection that last appearance, uh, and uh, you know where Jesus kind of eats breakfast with the disciples. He comes up and and at first they don't recognize him. Then they say, "Put the net out." They catch it. Oh my gosh! And then what Peter does is he doesn't say, "Go away." Mm-hmm. He runs. Right. He just jumps up and runs to Jesus, right? So it's this, it's this two kinds of like experience when you come into holiness. Like Rudolf Otto, and I think the idea of the holy says the a holiness that transcends the luminous. I think he says is like this weird thing. You're attracted to it. You want, it, and then yet it terrifies you. And, right. and, and this is one of two things, right? Like you'll either be repelled or drawn in by the well, light of love. Yeah. And I think the difference, at least in the John story, is that Peter, at that point, he'd walked with Jesus for three years. I just love the fact that at that at that moment, Peter hadn't seen Jesus since he last promised he wouldn't betray him, and then does, and yet he still jumps out of the boat and gets, you know, goes to him. To me, the difference between Luke five and and that story is that he he knows Jesus now. He and because of that knowledge, because of walking with him. He's attracted to him instead of being repelled. Um, yeah, yeah, his track record is no better. In fact, you could argue, you could argue, <laughs> given the fact that he's been with Jesus, maybe his track record looks worse. Right. But you're right. right. It's but it's seeing himself in light of Jesus right. changes his response. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very. Also, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I also love this this idea of abundance here. I just I can't get over the the fact that I I tend to live in a state of scarcity. Um, there's not enough time, not enough energy, not enough money, not enough anything. And yet here, you know, with their their choice to kind of see what happens, they get abundantly more than they anticipated. The nets are breaking. They get so much. Um, I don't know. I just, what would it be like to live in light of that? To live in light of the reality that you really do have enough? I'm yeah. Sure. Yeah. I think that, that, yeah, that's, that's right too. I mean, I think that it's interesting. I heard, uh, and Oh, gosh, it was this podcast called Imaginary Worlds, and they were talking about the imagine. It's all about the imaginary worlds we construct and why we do. It's like comic books, sci-fi, and stuff. And he did an episode with economists, and one of the things one of them noted is that, like in times of scarcity, our our imaginary like worlds are abundant, and in times of abundance, like wealth, we do these post-apocalyptic, like The Walking Dead, where you're kind of. But it is interesting, right? Because you think some of those things are like. What's interesting about post-apocalyptic stuff is who would I be mm-hmm. if the social realities were pulled away, right? Could I mm-hmm. still, like, if all these, if all this sort of transient abundance I had was gone, who would I be? Right. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> More conviction. <laughs> now, you occupy an interesting space because you teach theology, right? Mm-hmm. And you also are a pastor. And I think often, so there's this very interesting line, you, you'll be, you'll catch people or the old school, you know, I will make you fishers of men. You'll fish for people. That's great. Uh, a, a, a cappella version there by me. I, <laughs> but it's interesting. Oftentimes in the church, we, I feel like we contrast the evangelists and the, the shepherds or the caregivers, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the, the, well, if you really want to do outreach or something, that's you're the evangelist. And then the people that will love the people that's the pastors, the shepherds, but it seems like they're flip sides of the same coin, right? It's, it's, yes. it's because Jesus, when he draws people to him, it's because they're, he understands them, right? Like right. The, 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 the fishing isn't sort of, uh, just, uh, get them in the net and get them saved, make our tally. It's, it's, he knows them. There's a knowing and, mm-hmm. and being known. Sometimes you have, I feel like we contrast that. Like you're a salesperson or you're mm-hmm. a caregiver when really it, it, it's, 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 you, you could translate this. You're going to be such a lover of people. Yes. Yeah. I think the problem is the, is with the way that we frame evangelism. The problem isn't, isn't the actual work of evangelism. The actual work of evangelism, like you said, is really just gathering people to share in Jesus's abundance. And that requires, as you said, loving them. Um, and the, at least the picture given here is that they'll be drawn in, you know, they, when you love that much, people are drawn to it. Um, yeah, this isn't like a salesman on the street corner. <laughs> at least, at least that's not what I see. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's a beautiful picture of like being sent uh, to, to, to bring people into the net of love, you know, that mm-hmm. people, people just like you, Peter, people that think, they come into the temple and they see how unclean they are. They get a glimpse of real, the real holiness and light and love of God. And they, they no, 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 we can bring you into it. It doesn't have to repel you. It's actually, right. uh, you, you don't, you, it's almost like Peter's, you know, Jesus is saying, Peter's saying to Jesus, right? Like, you don't know who I am. And, and like Jesus is saying, no, you don't know who you are. Right. And, and, and that's, a, you know, people that come, hey, no, you don't understand who I am. That, that No, maybe you don't fully understand uh, that you're probably worse off than you think because we have to play all these self-justifying games in our head just to get a bed in the morning but you're also more loved than you could ever imagine and and, and that, yes. that that's the sweet spot and and knowing those things then you're in the net right and part of being a witness to that uh as you know peter so P- because peter encountered christ and and received that that invitation to love he can then say to the person who is feeling repelled just wait don't run you know, you can then come alongside those who are encountering the holy and say, you don't have to run. Um, like you said, you are more loved than you can possibly imagine. Um, that's what I think being a witness really is. Yeah. And if you stand there, even if all you can do is stand, it, it just not run away. Eventually, maybe that grace will get you to the place where you'll run towards him uh, into the water. Right. Not, you know, just, not away. I mean, that, that's a powerful and you're right from his own experience. He could say that, that this is, you know, it's also, I I love these stories about Peter because it it also brings to light that I feel like the the historical realism of the Bible, like if this was like an ideological track, I would have like made a lot more, I would have done more hagiography, right? Yes. I would have been like, take that part out, make me look a little better here. There's no doubt about that. We would have smoothed over all the hard edges. Um, but the gospel writers aren't really interested in doing that. It's precisely in these like messy, embarrassing, hard places that Jesus is being manifested. Yeah. 
It's interesting too that Jesus looks like it seems in both stories looks like this is what the the numinous the holy light of love looks like it looks one way in the temple it looks another way on the beach but they're so you're, like you pointed out they're startlingly similar uh, uh-huh. what, what it, it, although it look, might look different uh, it it seems like to it, it, one is this majestic temple with angels the, the things that the other is a Galilean rabbi but they the, the it, it's no less numinous or transcendent right. the, the the encounter. Right. And we have to be trained to recognize that, don't we? I mean, most of us are not going to have Isaiah 6 type encounters. If we do, it's going to be a one-off experience. Most of and us if I gonna... do, I went to cute little fat Cupid angels, <laughs> not the seraph. No, no burning seraphs with coals for me. <laughs> um, but we have to be trained to to recognize God on the beach. Like we're not we're not really trained to do that, especially in our really secularized world, we expect God to be absent from our everyday. And so we have to be trained through the church, through the scriptures, through the liturgy yeah. to be able to see God on the beach. Yeah, it's so interesting. I came across this young quote on Facebook from his letters, and he's responding to someone and says, you are quite right. The main interest of my work is not concerned with the treatment of neuroses, but rather with the approach to the numinous or, you know, the holy but the fact is that the approach to the numinous is the real therapy. And as much as you attain to the numinous experience, you are released from the curse of pathology. Even the very disease takes on a numinous character. Hmm. I, I love that. It's amazing, right? It's that it's 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 where the where the light of that transcendent love uh, is is more significant than the disease or the malady, you know. And even and, and through it, even the malady can become. A, even Peter's unbelief and sin becomes the vessel of yes. his own healing. Yes. That's the good news, isn't it? I mean, that sounds like the gospel to me. Amen to that. And may all of our listeners uh, preach it, hear it, and blessings to you and to your husband in his two-point charge <laughs> proclaiming it. <laughs> this week. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being with me, Emily. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Snacks Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Emily for coming on the podcast, and thanks again to you for listening to Synaxis. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.